0: Good morning, Todd. Uh, good morning, John. All right. Here we are today. This is the first uh, broad podcast that we've done in a couple of weeks, and it's a new year, so we're going to have a, a, a couple of new things happening soon. We're going to have a new intro and a new closing for the show, and we're, we're getting a little bit uh, more savvy with the technology ourselves, so we'll move forward. Uh, today, it looks like it's just you and I. Greg is off someplace. And uh, and you have chosen a very good accident today, even though it's, uh, you know, 17 years old. It drives home a lot of points today for our general aviation pilots, uh, which many need to be paying attention. It appears, it appears, numbers are not all in yet, but as the two of us research accidents to to, uh, use on this show, It appears that there's a number of recent accidents in general aviation that seem to be occurring more frequently than we've seen in the past. That's just a gut feeling, but it does seem like there's a lot of accidents and a, what I think, again, without any real uh, crunching the numbers, a a number of student pilot accidents seems to be up for whatever reason. There's in a lot of my hangar discussions, and they have local FBOs. And when I raise that, there's all sorts of reasons come out for that. But we don't have good data yet to figure it out. Just what has happened, what has changed to make a student pilot accidents seem to be more frequent. So we've got to do some work. The industry's got to do some work to try to figure out what's going on there. But for today, we've got an interesting one, weather-related famous flyer, and there are lessons in this for everybody. So why don't you set the stage for us, Todd, and give us the, the uh, what happened. Well, certainly,
1: uh, in this case, I'll actually lead with the pilot, because if you know anything about this pilot, who was Scott Crossfield, famous test pilot from the 1950s, flew in World War II, flown for over 60 years before his fatal event. Among other things, and there are many things in his record, he was the first person to exceed Mach 2 in an aircraft. This was back in the 1950s. He was also an X-15 pilot during the early days of the space program. And he had, at the time of the event, over 11,000 hours in all kinds of aircraft, both civil and military. The accident aircraft was a Cessna 206. This was in 19, excuse me, in 2006. And it was over uh, northern Georgia. Uh, to set the stage here, this was a flight otherwise routine, uh, going through a weather, uh, an area of severe weather. He had briefed himself uh, thoroughly on it and was trying to pick his way through what turns out to be a very severe thunderstorm. And from all accounts, it looks as though the aircraft had no mechanical issues, but it uh, lost control and crashed uh, while en route, while flying at about 11,000 feet. And what struck us about this is, first, this is a fairly common occurrence, that is aircraft flying through areas of severe thunderstorms. happens all the time. There is plenty of information out there that one can get from briefings, one can get from air traffic controller controllers, one can get from onboard equipment that could give you a heads up on this. And even though this was a 2006 accident, many of the things that uh, – we take for granted today were actually in place then. For example, uh, there were GPS-related systems on board the aircraft, and although he did not have the capability installed on the aircraft, technically it was possible back in 2006 to have updated weather information fed into your aircraft while en route. Now, the reasons for the crash, as stated by the NTSB, they put the probable cause both on the pilot and on the controllers, but as uh, you'll probably see through the course of this, it calls into question whether or not this was an equal weight sort of situation, whether or not the actions of the controllers might have contributed more to the event than the actions of the pilot. But uh, John, I want you to take us uh, through your perspectives on on this particular event and what uh, strikes you as
0: being of note that we should. Uh, think about well from from uh, my position about pre-flights and pre-briing for your flight it appears that Scott in this case uh, clearly was concerned about the weather it looks from the record that at least five times he queried the weather so he was he was conscious of it being a problem and concerned enough that he Queried it at least five times so we know that to be a fact but then after after he takes off there's no indication that he was was uh revisiting the weather at all he never asked for help he never asked for for the weather the controllers you know we had a, a situation here with the controllers where there was a change of of essentially the shift in the, in the controllers so it was a handoff and that may or may not played a role in the the controller's piece. Uh, And the the other piece of the controller is uh, they violated their own handbook for procedures for notifying pilots of weather. You know, and as I've said oftentimes on this show, it's uh, all of us in aviation have to fit like a hand in a glove, so to speak. You know, pilots and mechanics should be singing from the same sheet of music. And uh, we see it over and over again that that doesn't happen. And and we also have seen in the past where pilots and air traffic controllers are not on the same page either. So, you know, in aviation, we all have to make an effort uh, to uh, essentially be our brother's keepers. You know, we have to look out for each other. And I know air traffic control is a difficult job. At times, they don't have time to even take a second breath on anything because there's so much going on. Uh, but we can't lose fact We can't lose the fact that mistakes by any one of the three in, the, in that group that I mentioned can be fatal. So we need to really pay attention. But in the case of Scott, with eleven thousand hours checking the weather so much, it's, it seems sort of uh, out of character that he would get himself in such a pickle with the weather being able to, to surround him essentially. So he's flying into this. This box canyon of weather, and and uh, you know if you read the reports and in the uh, what's available, it sure looked like he had no place to go. When when you know like ten minutes before this accident happened, he had no place to go. He, he was he was in a in a box with absolutely no possibility of getting out of it.
1: And when the, he did recognize that he had to get out of it, he was deviating. Uh, because of the thunderstorm, and radar contact was lost roughly 30 seconds afterwards. So this was a fairly extreme system. And to give you an idea of this, there are two phrases here that I wasn't familiar with until we reviewed this accident. In the analysis in the accident report, the uh, NTSB described it, uh, the area as a, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing some of the words here, a mesoscale convective system of intense thunderstorm activity. And this is not just a single thunderstorm cell but a collection of thunderstorm cells and furthermore uh, it was described as being a level 6 thunderstorm and reading from one of the advisory circulars from the uh, FAA uh, this level 6 is extreme level with extreme with severe turbulence lightning large hail extensive surface winds and turbulence and elsewhere in the report i believe it uh, mentioned that uh, there was a possibility of two-inch size hail, um, or in the uh, public dockets, two-inch size hail being produced by the thunderstorms. And hail and thunderstorms are such where it could be within the thunderstorm, it could be ejected out of the thunderstorm. So in other words, there was a lot going on here. It's unclear whether or not, from the analysis, whether or not he had a lot of experience flying in or near such a system. But certainly, this kind of level six, level six thunderstorm is not something that's seen every day. Now, there was even some idea from the forecast that these kinds of thunderstorms, or at least severe thunderstorms, were going to be forming in that area. And during the event itself, the air traffic controller, who was last in contact with Crossfield, has stated things to the effect of, he had seen other aircraft picking their way through the thunderstorms. In his opinion, he didn't think it was severe enough to give a crossfield warning. So, And also, and this is telling, that uh, the controller felt as though that the information that he was getting about the thunderstorms in the area was delayed from, I think, 16 to 15 minutes, he stated, which is normal because in the weather radars that ATC uses, it's not an instantaneous response. That is, whatever system is picking up the weather it has to be processed and then sent to the controllers, and there's going to be some delay. I'm not sure what the delay would be in the year 2023, but he was thinking it was from 6 to 15 minutes. And he thought it was unreliable. Now, that might be the case. But in my opinion, and again, I've never been a controller, so I'm speaking... um, without uh, full knowledge of this, it seems as though the controller on the ground had access to more uh, sophisticated and wide ranging information than the pilot did. And even though it is not the primary responsibility of the controller to provide weather to the pilot, uh, one of the things that the NTSB uh, pointed out was that uh, you know the fail- the controller did not provide that information to the pilot. So the pilot didn't have the opportunity the option of making an earlier decision
0: to deviate. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of time when he when he finally realized where where he ended up, where he got himself into. It. So it's tough, and you know, air traffic controllers get criticized all the time, in, in, in a number of accidents, you know, you could have, would have, should have done this, done that. It's it, it is a difficult job. Air traffic control is a difficult job. And that's why they get the compensation level that they get. A lot of responsibility that goes with that position. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that, that Scott found himself in this position. But let's talk a minute or two about where we are today. Since you're moving into this arena again for a second time, I've been talking more and more with maintenance people on what they're seeing and uh, and some of the problems that they're, they're facing with the smart technology coming in at the airplanes, because we're still faced with maintenance personnel are not getting uh, the best available training. They're not even getting sometimes very much training and all these new systems come in, but they're expected to maintain them, to keep them going. They should have this uh, uh, a similar level of knowledge for the pilots for operating some of this advanced avionics, and I'm finding admittedly from the individuals I'm finding over and over and over again that they don't fully understand what they're working on because they haven't had that kind of training. You know, you, I can remember where, when I worked for the airlines, the pilots were getting intensive training on some of the avionics and the airplane, and we get 10 minutes. And, you know, there's a big disconnect there and we would muddle through it and, and get through because we had time usually, to get through it. But pilots don't have that luxury. And you know, putting stuff on MEL or releasing it when it isn't fully uh, serviceable is not the answer. So the industry has some work to do in that, that area, especially now with so many new pilots and new mechanics coming into the, and new air traffic controllers. I mean, we're losing air traffic controllers of retirees at a pretty rapid rate. The FAA is struggling to keep up with the hiring of air traffic, hiring and training to get a fully competent air traffic controller. I mean, it's not an easy task. It takes uh, years to get somebody that comes in the door to be a fully qualified air traffic controller.
1: In that so, case, whether you're an air traffic controller, whether you're a maintenance professional, whether you're a pilot, it takes a while to get used to how things are done. It takes a while to understand how the pieces is- work fit together you know speaking personally basically being back in student mode after decades away uh, the biggest issue i face is dealing with the information and the technology the level of information that's literally at your fingertips either from your ipad your phone or what have you or from going online is just orders of magnitude greater than what happened uh, what was the case 30 or 40 years ago that said uh, just because you have a lot of information doesn't mean you're making it useful for yourself. So one of the things I have to go through personally is just getting used to what combination of resources do I need to paint a picture of what's going on. Now, for example, this is not a promotional uh, item here. And if a company feels that it is, please pay us. I use ForeFlight, which is a fantastic system for keeping up to date with uh, charts, uh, weather information, et cetera. At my fingertips, I can look and see what's going on. I can look up the SIGMETs, et cetera, et cetera. In 2006, the four-flight company hadn't even been invented. So that level of information was not available. And right now, the case is that if you have the right kinds of equipment on your aircraft, you can have updated weather information beamed right into your aircraft from air traffic control radars in addition to any onboard radar that you have. Going back to Scott Crossfield's uh, situation in 2006, which was 17 years ago, uh, that kind of information, maybe not as sophisticated as today, existed, but he didn't have the combination of equipment on board the aircraft to receive it, although he did have a subscription to uh, XM radio that would have provided that kind of information to him. Now, this is not a fault of the pilot because this equipment, that level of equipment is not required on the aircraft that level of recruitment is optional. And not every aircraft owner, not every renting organization is going to have that. Even if you did have that, it's a question of familiarity. It takes a while to become familiar with working a system. It's one thing to work that system, let's say in a simulator on the ground, which I do a lot of times with avionics on the kind of aircraft I fly. But one of the issues I face is that the simulation or the textbook exercise or the variation you might see in explanatory videos and such may not be what's in the airplane. And the possibility in my case of mode confusion is high in that understanding what's going on with the system takes time. If I'm sitting down you know, in my office here and dealing with the system, something goes wrong, I have the luxury of stopping, looking at the reference, trying a few things, and getting it right. When I'm in the sky, other things are happening, and that's important, but it's not as important as continuing to fly the airplane. So if I run into the same kind of issue, understanding what mode I'm in and what what it's saying to me, I'm more likely to ignore that piece of technology and go with secondary systems to get through the situation. So, yes, you have great technology. It takes a while to learn it. Takes a while, to, a longer while to learn to use it right in an operational situation. And as uh, the systems become interrelated, for example, you have your onboard systems and you have to rely on air traffic controller. It's a question of are all the parts working in concert? And we have one more player here that we didn't mention the weather. No matter what we know about the weather, the weather is always surprising us. That's been the case since you know, people have been trying to fly aircraft. This might be no different. So even if you had everything working for you, there's always the possibility of you encountering something you'd never seen before. You having a situation that no one else you're working with at that moment is, has been through before. And you may not make the decision that is optimal. And in that case, getting back to this accident, if it's something where you even think for a second, that you might not be able to deal with it, or it might be beyond your level of understanding or capability. And if it can potentially kill you, do something immediately, uh, divert, decide not to take off, whatever the case may be, because you cannot overestimate the ability of nature to surprise you in the sky.
0: Yes. You know, there's one other piece to this, and I'm not 100% sure that this is accurate, but i've heard it a number of times and and given the facts it does sort of fit the scenario and the, what i hear what i have heard is that there was a significant family event back in virginia that he had to get home for or he wanted to get strongly wanted to get home for and could that have affected his decision making before he even left the ground to fly this particular day, you know, and I would encourage all of our listeners to keep that in the front of your mind, not in the back of your mind. That you know, nothing is so important that you have to go. You know, airlines cancel with all the support that they have; they cancel and divert for weather. You know, so it's important to keep that in the front of your, your brain to think about. Do I really need to fly through this type of weather just because I have to get home or get to some place for an event? Can I delay it? Can I sit in the ground? This was a, early on, they said that this was a fast moving storm. So sitting on the ground for an hour, an hour and a half, would that have been enough to put the storm behind him or to have it break up enough so that passage would have been easier? So all of these are factors that you need to put into your pre-planning for a flight before you even get to the airport and after your airport. Checking the weather in Scott's case five times. I think that was in in the front of his mind. I think he he was concerned about the weather enough to keep checking it because there was something pushing him to want to take this flight. And we have to resist that, all of us. I, I know in my own case, I was pushed by ticket agents, gate agents, um, you know, even maintenance control to get the airplane, get it done, get it done, we're on the way, you know, and you, you're pushing. We have that pushing everywhere in aviation. We have pushing in in the tower. Air uh, traffic controls are pushed because of the amount of traffic they have. So as individuals, we all have to keep that in our mind that you don't want to be pushed. If it's not safe, you got to say, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Let's take a look at what we're doing.
1: So with that. Before I go to the last word, I want to make sure that uh, we do something we do commonly through any of our shows, reading the actual probable cause, because we've gone back and forth talking about various aspects of this. We've seen, uh, we read the NTSB final report. We also looked at the public docket and we have other information about the pilot's background and what else might have been happening, that's beyond that documentation. But let's just look at the probable cause and you can see why you know, so many things are left unanswered and why we have this discussion. Under the probable cause and findings, it says a national transportation safety board determines the probable causes of this accident to be the pilot's failure to obtain updated in weather information which resulted in his continued instrument flight into a widespread area of severe convective activity and the air traffic controller's failure to provide adverse weather avoidance assistance, as required by federal aviation directives, both of which led to the airplane's encounter with a severe thunderstorm and subsequent loss of control. Kind of dry, kind of sort of evenly putting the the blame, if you will, on both the uh, air traffic controller and the pilot. But uh, that is not to say that this was an equal contribution to the accident. This is not to say that it was totally due to, uh, you know, the fault of either the air traffic controller or the pilot, because like I said before, you know, nature gets a vote in this. And no mention was was made of whether or not there were conditions here which were unique. No mention was made of a lot of things that we mentioned during this. So my takeaway, this is my last word, uh, this is uh, so be it, is that, the story is not as cut and dried as you see in the accident reports or in the public docket. And even though this is something that is 17 years old, there are lessons that we can take away that are absolutely relevant today. That is, the information that you have, the information that other parts of the system has, and whether or not that information is enough to keep you out of trouble.
0: true, how true. How true. Well, we, this is another good show. I would like to remind uh, our listeners, I mentioned about the student accident rate. And, and you know, and, and students are also people building time. If you're renting an airplane, please protect yourself, protect your family, and get a renter's policy. You know, Avemco is our sponsor. They have them. There's another... A number of other companies that provide them but cover yourself protect your family and get a decent renter's insurance policy so that in the event that you make a mistake uh, your family's covered if you don't survive and if you do survive save yourself a lot of grief because the, the numbers you know the damage numbers the cost of having an accident is just just unbelievable it's not like a car accident Right. The cost, the cost is uh, really high. So, protect your family, protect yourself. Get some renters insurance. And with that, I'll do what I always do. If you're going to go flying, do a good session of pre-planning before you leave the house. Redo it again when you get to the airport. When you get out to the airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight and touch your airplane. Wiggle things. You know, wiggle the flight controls. We've seen an accident after accident where if the pilot had done a decent pre-flight, the accident would not have occurred. If you don't know what a good pre-flight is, get a mechanic that works on the airplane regularly and have him walk you around it. Because mechanics do those inspections all the time and they know where the problems are. And they'll help you along so that you don't get yourself in trouble. After you get it off the ground, Put that head on a swivel because we still have see and avoid accidents. Well, see and not avoid accidents. We have too many many of those. So put that head on a swivel and please fly safely.
2: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives, and remember to always fly safe.